Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Alexander Dunlap to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Alexander is a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Development and Environment at the University of Oslo. He holds a PhD in Social Anthropology his PhD thesis examining the socio-ecological impact of wind energy development on indigenous people in Oaxaca, Mexico. His work has critically examined police-military transformations, market-based conservation, wind energy development, and other extractive projects. So thank you very much, Alexander, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Yes, my pleasure. Can you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, talk a little bit about your background and focus of your work and interests generally? Yeah. Um, So currently I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo. But I have a PhD in social anthropology and a background in kind of environmental and development studies. I'm from Northern California, but I've managed to do a lot of my higher education in England, the Netherlands, and now I'm based in Norway. A lot of my focus has really been taking a look at kind of uh, infrastructural development and kind of kind of natural resource extraction projects. And so my, my PhD field work was based in the southwest corner of Oaxaca, Mexico, in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec region, where I lived with Zapotec and Akut indigenous groups who were fighting kind of the the spread of wind energy development in the area. And then after that, and while I was writing that up, I worked with my friend who was kind of the lead on the project, Andrea Brock, who we looked at the Humboldt coal mine. It's the biggest coal mine in Germany. We did a paper on that together and she did her doctoral thesis and kind of elaborated a lot more the relationship between environmental offsets and, and coal mining and this kind of branding of trying to make mining sustainable. And then after that, I ended up working in the Baile Tambo in southwest Peru, looking at the Tia Maria conflict, um, which is a copper mine. And this was particularly interesting because this company was a Mexican company, and they had a wind park in the area I worked in Mexico, but they were also mining copper, which I think we'll talk about later is extremely important for energy infrastructure and so-called renewable energy. And then now more recently, I've been working in southern France, I've been working with land defenders and people who've been fighting the construction of a a big energy transformer designed to expand renewable energy in the area, but also serve as kind of an energy corridor within France and but into many other countries in Europe and maybe even North Africa 
with kind of energy markets and trading. And so I've been, I worked on that for some years on and off, and now I'm, I'm back kind of looking at that. That's kind of my overview in the areas I work. And I, I really kind of, I work with environmental conflicts and kind of infrastructural development and natural resource extraction. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Not not a subject that I've addressed, I don't think, very much, if at all, on the Sustainability Agenda podcast and interviews. And I'm looking forward to going to talking in some detail about some of the projects that you've you've seen close up. But maybe just before then, um, I always like to just set the scene a little bit. We're facing so many environmental and, and indeed other challenges at the moment, interlocked and interconnected and so forth. What, what in particular is on your mind right now? Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of, and a lot of this stems from kind of my field work in Oaxaca is, is really the question of what is renewable energy? It's kind of what's really kind of present. And right now I'm, I'm looking at kind of energy infrastructure and its, its impacts on the ground. And the question that plagues me, and I guess that I really want to raise to other people is to ask, you know, is there such thing of renewable energy? And if there is, you know, what is it? And implicit with this is challenging the concept of renewable energy and actually questioning what really is this. Because in my experience, and if you work on the ground with people, especially people who are fighting them, and I've worked with really with specifically energy infrastructure, renewable energy, I've worked with indigenous people and specifically Zapotec and Akut in Southwest Mexico. And also now with French land defenders who have very wide concerns about actually what is this and there's, and my, my claim and something that I've written about is that really there's no such thing as renewable energy, uh, at least what we know of it. It comes kind of, it's a concept and it's also linked to energy transition. And my term that I say is more accurate that we should all consider when we, instead of using the term renewable energy, is actually fossil fuel plus. And the, what this term means and what it's contending is that every single aspect of what we consider to be renewable energy is actually based on kind of intense hydrocarbon extraction, but also mineral extraction to make these projects. And so I can speak more about this, but it, it's really to understand that these are large technological apparatuses that are, that are extremely resource intensive and have extremely large supply webs with a lot of questions behind them. Right, right. Very, very interesting indeed. So you're, you're less certain about the green credentials then of electric cars. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, it's crazy that, <laughs> I mean, maybe there could be something to some electric buses or, or really working on how train lines can be kind of revived. But the idea that the ecological solution was to create cars based on rare earth minerals, which is, I know before the 1980, in the, in the 1980s, there was probably, I believe I read some statistic a long time ago that it was 0 0.3, 0 0.03 or 0.3% rare earth minerals were used. And it was mostly for the military sector for their different computers and things like this. Now they're in everything and everywhere and these are extremely toxic processes of extraction that are on par with uranium mining in terms of actually i mean they're not, the rares themselves aren't rare but they're usually tied up with thorium and other kind of kind of radioactive nucleides you have to dredge them out with a lot of other minerals you have to separate them for that for one kind of ton of ore you get somewhere between three and eight percent from it so there's an extreme there's a lot of waste and so they're extremely damaging. And so to say that electric, like, oh, 
you know, we should be talking about actually riding our bikes more. We should talk about walking. We should be doing, we should be talking about kind of public transportation, reviving train lines, you know, really still promoting mobility, but doing it in a way that's responsible. But to, to kind of just rebrand car culture with rare earth minerals is just adding another layer of extreme extractivism on there. Not to mention where is the energy that powers them coming from? How, where's the energy that manufactures them comes from and so on and so forth. So it's there. There's a lot of blind spots that I feel are almost purposely neglected. So we, so industrial humans can continue being irresponsible with their relationship with the earth and what they're doing. And it's ultimately people are doing it to themselves and to yeah. other people. So, yeah, brilliant. The whole, uh, I guess, renewable energy is seen as by many as a central plank to what, well, so-called decarbonizing our economies, become a poster child, really. Um, so what, what do you think is the potential for renewable energy? Well, I, I think there are there is potential. And really, the end of the day, I, I am an advocate of, of some type of fossil fuel plus technologies or renewable energy technologies. But they, it's actually one has to be very careful how one engages with them. And and because there's there's always going to be very high kind of ecological and even social costs, depending on how these projects are developed and operationalized and what they're used, what kind of, what their energy is being used to power. And maybe maybe speaking more to this concept of fossil fuel plus and the way to think about renewable energy is the way that I explained it is there is there's kind of five central ways to think about renewable energy or fossil fuel plus technologies, which I think is a more accurate term, but you have the raw material extraction phase that we need to begin taking into account. And so this means really looking into the, the different cobalt, the copper, the rare earth minerals, the iron ore, the aluminum and all these different processes and actually looking into how they're built. And I have a big contention that a lot of the modeling going on promoting renewable energy and energy transition, they're really not looking and investigating into these things well enough. And I'm, so I have a background in social anthropology and I I work in these areas, not only in the kind of the development of wind energy projects on site, but also in mines where the resource that resources are used to kind of make these, to make renewable energy infrastructure, wind, solar, so on and so forth. But there's an extreme amount of mining. There's an extreme amount of violence that goes into actually acquiring these resources. In fact, they're a national security issue. If you want to talk about actually how rare earth minerals are acquired, but also cobalt in countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, but also issues with China as well. But all over the world, whether it's also the kind of the recent issue is also the lithium deposits related to kind of kind of smart technologies and batteries in Bolivia. But it, so the, there's really deep-seated and big supply chain issues with understanding kind of the raw material extraction for so-called renewable energy. And this also leads to issues of processing these, these minerals, manufacturing in them, the different labor conditions that go on with them, and then also the kind of the factories that you need to even have the mining equipment that are all run on hydrocarbons. And so it's kind of on this basis that it's this distinction between renewable energy and fossil fuels that is very, very popular, very common is for me is a very, is a false dichotomy that has to be dissolved if we're going to have an honest conversation actually about how to become ecologically and socially sustainable. But so that's just phase one with the kind of the renewable, with the kind of the raw material extraction phase, which I think is one of the most important to really consider. Yeah, maybe we'll just look at that for a moment. What, What is extractivism? I mean, so extractivism comes from Latin America, 
and is largely attributed to being coined by Eduardo Guiones. And there's stricter ways of, of looking and defining it. I take a looser way and was criticized him, I think, directly the other week for doing this. But I also think that he has a more kind of rudimentary, I don't think, I think he had a bit of a rudimentary take in how he described relationships in there. But ultimately, it's really based in kind of this idea of dependency theory and how kind of in Latin America, they're used as resource colonies where land is sold cheap or there, I mean, it's taken over or sold cheap and there's different kind of trade agreements where transnational companies go in, just grab and extract the resources. They don't even process them there. There's, there's little to no economic participation of the Latin American countries in actually using these resources and they're exported to do these things to make different goods to be sold back to them at higher rates. And but really, it's the idea of, of these kind of unequal, coercive, and deceptive relations. I mean, the way I look at extractivism is there are unequal, coercive, and deceptive relationships that are being used to grab natural resources. And that can be timber, mining, fisheries, and now in themselves, in terms of actually wind energy development and solar development, as well as hydro. I mean, dams have big ecological footprints also. And so... And I, I've been, a, I've kind of pushed, and, and then there's been a lot of Native Americans to really talk about, it was the Leona, Leanna Simpson talking about the cognitive extractivism, Ramon Grafogel, who really brought forth the idea of kind of epistemic and ontological extractivism, which is to say is that there's different methods of, of learning and being with the land and different ways of seeing the world that are actually being taken up and kind of exploited to to being sold. I mean, a lot of people say kind of the idea of the green economy in itself is an idea of kind of epistemic extractivism in terms of, oh, we were destroying the world as they reflected in 1987 with the, the Brundtlin report. And like, oh, now we need a sustainable development and now looking to kind of, kind of lo- local uh, traditional ecological knowledge and, and trying to just pick and choose from different cultures and just, again, taking with kind of without, with little to no respect from these different cultures to use these different ideas. But so extractivism is really, is really just taking from people and, or by means of coercion, just taking it, beating them, you know, the same way land is dispossessed to mine, to kind of, to make industries or through deception, through kind of faulty different land contracts, using literacy issues as a way to manipulate things, using people's lack of knowledge of the economy are of kind of market values or are really long-term consequences of selling land for certain periods of time. And, and again, it's, it's just creating poor relationships or, and, and manipulating people. It, it's an, un, it's a bad deal. It's an unfair relationship and negotiation that is leaving people in, in bad places. You see this as being significantly present in the renewable energy sector in the global South and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the literature, I mean, and there are ways and communities are less upset about kind of renewable energy, but there's, I mean, I have to focus on a lot of them and I I was just in two of them. I was in two of them last month. I was in two communities in France and now I'm looking at problems with power lines. Yeah, it's very common. I, I see it in Greece. There's papers coming out of Brazil. I mean, and it's all, it's all over the world where there's, there's problems over the kind of the formation of expanding energy infrastructure and renewable energy. And so that's why I, me, myself, and also my friend Andrea Brock, we've been big about talking about the idea of green extractivism in terms of how kind of the green economy or this green discourse or renewable energy or energy transition, how these are just yay words 
to kind of to revive and create new markets and create new extractive relationships. Right, right. Very interesting. Maybe we can come back to that a bit later in, in more detail about what you've actually witnessed and uh, with the extraction. So what is a good measure of the what you might call the, the ecological footprint of, let's say, a wind turbine and so forth? Who develops these models? How, how well developed are they? How accurate are they? I just saw some research in, in Nature magazine, which was saying that uh, solar, wind, and I think nuclear creates an insignificant carbon footprint compared with savings from avoiding fossil fuels. Now, I haven't looked into the details of that research and so forth. Possibly they're excluding some important variables, some really important impacts that you see in terms of, you know, you're talking about labor conditions and, and other things like that. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how to assess and you know, explore the, the, the actual impact of, of just even, say, taking a wind turbine? Yeah, no, I, I would love to. Um, I mean, really, I find a lot of these headlines very, very laughable. And it's actually, it's a bit depressing the way that the, the lack of cl- critical reflection that is actually going into understanding the reality of kind of energy infrastructure in general and kind of what it entails. And so, yeah, the thing is, I mean, there's always a, a level of unreliability that modelers themselves accept in kind of drawing up these models. But the level of abstraction is, is, insane from my perspective in terms of actually if one wanted to really actually be ecologically and socially sustainable to take these into account and so i don't know this study specifically but i've recently reviewed a lot of different life cycle assessment studies and a lot of different um a lot of the studies saying these things and really trying to get to the numbers and so a lot of them are making different assumptions they assume very high levels of recycling they assume very different levels of different inputs that they're putting into the graph. And so the the issue of data of actually what this data is that they're putting into these models and these different, and a lot of it's just done by computer and different models design that you're inputting, you're inputting different data into different models that are created. And there's many, many, many different types of life life cycle assessments, different kind of modeling exercises that are being used to justify these things. But so there's the, (laughs) there's the issue of, you know, of how one's designing these, these models and what kind of different factors are being taken into account. And there's many different ones and there's, it's a whole industry in terms of how they're trying to build and design them. Then there's the issue of actually the data, whose data is it, how was it collected and how is all these very complex issues being represented and kind of brought into these different data sets. And so, and for me, they're they're not represented very well at all. And this brings up the other issue of kind of carbon, you know, carbon is the leading measurement of actually talking about and kind of justifying these models, which in and of itself is is very problematic to me because it that is that is one factor and it's it's carbon is one way of actually looking at environmental problems and social issues that is neglecting so many different things and is used as a signifier for six other different gases, you know, methane gas, and that it's based on different measurements that change frequently that are not not too they don't change too frequently but there are not the numbers and how they're actually calculated between carbon the way that carbon is other kind of gases or pollutions are calculated into carbon changes and alters and a lot of these measurements come out of the private sector and the kind of the world resources institute and some of their partners so for me the whole thing especially from an anthropological perspective that is really about going on the ground, looking at the complications of what's going on, 
looking into kind of the ecological knowledge that's in place and what people care about and why they're actually engaging in really combative struggles to stop these mines or to stop these wind turbines. And so the models for me, it, it's, it's very sad of there's, I mean, for me that they're frankly, they're, they're a bit delusional in terms of how people are. And, it, and the, the thing is, is so-called renewable energy is the big hope to actually continue kind of industrial civilization to kind of continue kind of this capitalist growth imperatives to justify green growth and things like this. And so it's, it's a big crux to justify these things, but the only thing holding that together, the only thing kind of holding together the green illusion to me are, are these models and are these studies that you reference that. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't want to go into too much detail yeah. on models and so forth, but it yeah. is interesting. I mean, this particular one was in, uh, in, in Nature magazine. I don't know to what degree uh, these are uh, peer-reviewed. I, I, I don't know to what degree some of these uh, areas of study are, are, are relatively new and maybe haven't got established protocols and so forth. But is there not a kind of standardized set of, you know, scientific research protocols, which are, which are you know, agreed upon by, by uh, you know, scientists or researchers working in the field and presumably to some extent or largely that, that works? Yeah, I mean, no, most certainly there is a there is a protocol and I read at different studies in nature saying similar things. And I've tried to contact those researchers to see kind of how they justify them. But if anything, it's almost this kind of culture this kind of culture of modeling, this kind of the dominance of kind of an economics perspective that is kind of become holy in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of a lot of policy, a lot of the, a lot of the decisions made for the natural environment. And for people are all based on kind of these economic analyses, these models and things like this. And so, yeah, they're most certainly they're peer reviewed, but they're peer reviewed by by the gospel that kind of supports them. And for me and someone who's not necessarily in economics and who's not in with modeling. And I've been in the last year, I've been actually having to train myself as an engineer and as a modeler to try to understand how a lot of this is being justified or actually how different pollution and problems are taking place. And I'm constantly trying to talk to modelers and I'm very curious of the psychology of modelers in terms of how they can really believe in these things. And a lot of what I come down to is that people are deeply immersed in kind of industrial infrastructures. You know, we're very living in cities, we're very dependent and are, are acclimated to, to living in a certain type of way and are, are separated from kind of having deeper connections or understanding different life cycles, especially compared to different kind of land-based cultures or indigenous groups. So it's, between kind of really living within these structures, living in kind of academic disciplines that kind of promote and support this type of kind of engagement with the world and, and study of it. And also there's a lot of an economic incentive to actually kind of believe in these things. And there's also a social and life acceptance, especially given the extent of kind of ecological and climate crisis in the world right now. So I... So even at the, the level of the assumptions they're making in some of this research and so forth, as far as I can see, they're not including issues like work conditions, uh, uh, impact on local communities and things like that, for, sh for sure. I mean, presumably there are some of those as well. But as you say, quite a lot of this is measuring carbon and, and measuring quite a narrow range of, of variables. I mean, presumably not, not, not always the case, but one or two of the ones I've just looked at are. What have you been seeing on the ground? In, and, and can you talk a little bit about just what, what happens when uh, an area which may not have been 
you know, identified before as being uh, rich in wind resources, as it were. <laughs> Presumably, uh, you know, w- when these companies come in, they're, they're dealing with the, the local communities and the local political structures as well. Can you give us some sense of what you saw maybe in Huaca in, in Mexico and indeed yeah, as well? Yeah, no, I'd love to. And I and just maybe to speak to the last point, to kind of put it in there, it's, there's just a really big issue of the data, how it's collected, and what it's actually representing. And, and as you mentioned, it, it really doesn't kind of speak to the kind of the local the kind of the more immediate issues or textured issues that kind of take place around. And, and yeah, with kind of Oaxaca and also the other areas I worked and it's, it's actually, and if you look at other people's work and kind of critical development studies, uh, human geography, social anthropology, and, and most importantly, political ecology, you'll see that it's actually, unfortunately, extremely common uh, how, how it goes down. But usually how it works is that the companies come into an area they logically they go straight for kind of the local politicians or leaders in the area and and the landowners that are that have the land that they want and in mexico for example this is a lot more complicated with kind of the different land relationships down there and specifically the what they call social property which is related to kind of communal land which is our pre-colonial claims of of actually kind of collective use of land and also ajitos, which was a big, big win in the Mexican Revolution in terms of collective land use and kind of holding onto their land. And so th- this makes more complicated dynamics in terms of how land deals are negotiated. But you, the companies come in, they identify the kind of the key players, they begin making deals with them, and they get the official signatures. They get support from different levels of government, usually these imperatives for kind of renewable wind energy or renewable energy development, as it's called, comes from the, you know, the federal governments are really supporting these things. There's this push for a foreign direct investment to kind of get economic investment from large transnational companies. And then so they, they go get the local signatures of the local politicians and they try to do everything they can to, to negotiate and to create deals, usually long term leases with the with the different farmers in these areas and so there's a big negotiating aspect and what happened in mexico is that this happened many some communities completely rejected it uh, most notably san mateo del mar and others the the politicians agreed to it in these areas and didn't really inform people and try to keep it a bit of a secret about what was going to happen and so there's the issue of having leaders getting a certain amount of money. Sometimes they were not sure exactly what they do with that money. And, and then also landowners who think that they negotiated well, but really they're not, they're not really, they're not really prepared for the, the social changes that are about to happen in terms of the amount of money they're really getting and, and the loss of maybe some of the ecological impacts of to the soil, but also if you're near marine areas and in, in the place that I'm thinking that happen. And so what happens is there, there's the general, so they, they allow the projects, they kind of move through, they maybe bring some jobs. And in the case, in one of the towns I'm thinking of in Oaxaca, people even were kind of helping at first and didn't exactly know what they were working for. But it comes down to that ultimately, people didn't even really know the reality of what a wind turbine does to the land. They didn't know how it was actually going to affect their kind of their social and local habits in terms of fishing late at night. And also they saw when they started building construction, at least in, in Guijaro and Zapotec or Alvaro Obregón, 
they didn't actually realize the impact it was going to have on the fish in the area. And that was their livelihood. Like by kind of UN poverty statistics, these places are in abject poverty. But the reality of it is, is that they still had access to amazing fish, shrimp, and different types of food and, and that they lived off, they, what they lived from. And so when the companies come in and they, they do this, they realize no one's really been consulted and had any participation in the procedure or project design that there's been an unequal distribution of money in these areas in terms of people. One people, some people got paid a lot. They distributed money unequally between the different kind of factions of people to try to hold it together. And so there's, there's kind of the distribution of money issues. And then overall there's the, yeah, no one was consulted, unequal distribution of benefits. And then there's the ecological issues that started to happen. And this is what in the, in the case of Ghidro, really tipped people over into I, and then this change yeah it changed the social relations people weren't allowed to go fishing or be in this area at certain times so all of a sudden a foreign transnational company was dictating the term or they're a consortium so they like to say that they're from mexico but really a lot of it was were spanish companies and so they're not allowed to go fishing at certain times it's changing things their areas being controlled by by people from the outside and so this led to them rising up and kicking out the companies burning some of the trucks, making barricades, and then engaging in a long-term struggle to kind of stop the project out there. And, and this happened in multiple villages in, in the area, especially the ones along the Laguna Superior. And in the case of Guidron Abrogón, this led to, became a long-term struggle for, for indigenous autonomy to actually re reclaim their decision-making processes, their identities. And this led to them peacefully kicking out the, the mayor taking over the town hall, forming their own kind of government based on Usoi Kustumbres, which is kind of a traditional form of governance recognized in the state of Oaxaca, which is a very high percentage of in, different indigenous populations. And, and then forming their own communitarian police and doing everything they can to keep out the politicians and having their own kind of form of decision-making and most certainly the companies. And so I lived in this area for just under, yeah, for about five months and kind of join and watch what was going on, the different conflicts, the complications of these things. And yeah, I can speak more about the direct impacts of, of the wind turbines in other areas. When was this? And, and exactly what was the specific project? It began as the Mourinho Rebunables project. And I began, I went down there in December 2014 and had to leave in May 2015. And it was in Alvaro Obregón. And later this project got moved and canceled and went to another part of the region, which generated a whole lot of other different kind of social problems over there. Um, but yeah, so, so this was a highly contested project. It, it, it triggered a lot of intense fighting and also kind of, kind of extrajudicial, not only police action and people repelling the police, but extrajudicial actions and intercommunal fighting. And a lot of it's all based on money coming from the outside, wrecking the environment, not distributing things well, not including people in the projects, and then it being a serious issue of livelihoods. That sounds terrible and a really bad situation. I guess it, it varies from place to place, and uh, some projects are better than others. You know, this is an area you've looked at, you've edited various books, you're in contact with researchers. Is this, in your experience, an unusual outcome? To what extent does this seem more common, shall we say, 
And I'm just wondering also about what kind of governance oversees these kinds of projects. Is it very much a kind of local, wherever you're working? It all depends on, on that. Are there, there other maybe uh, NGOs involved or multilateral organizations overlooking this kind of thing? I mean, if, yeah, from my experience, the, the symptom of the problem is extremely generalized and widespread. And a lot of environmental justice is doing everything they can. And so a lot of the social movements are fighting for being involved in project planning, being involved in actually the procedure of deciding and getting more information about these things, and also working to have like greater benefit shares and being cut into having a, a greater percentage of actually what's happening in these areas. And so it's extremely widespread. I can tell you how it happened in France with the big energy infrastructure and how people kind of experience this, a very similar fate, even though a completely different culture and different kind of political institutional context, even though it's still, there's still very similar elements. So it's the same thing. The company comes in, they find local politics, they find the key people. In this case, I, one of the main whistleblower on this thing was someone who was in the, the city government at that time. And by her and other accounts, there was a complete break of procedure. A paper got signed. No one ever talked about it. No one knew about it. Um, and then so it gave the right of the big French infrastructure company to come in and it very quickly became contested. They, they created a civil society group called Plateau Savolte. They began a legal battle starting in 2010 to try to stop this big transformer from com coming into their village. The area is already kind of covered in lots of wind turbines, solar and ener energy infrastructure, and they didn't want to have it anymore. And later it turned out not only was it to kind of increase the kind of the spread and colonization of their re region further by more kind of renewable energy technologies when their area is already energy self-sufficient from dams in the area. But it was also really about creating an energy corridor to supply energy through energy markets. So to ultimately to make profits from these things in other regions, you know, locally was defined by the government in the area as other big cities three or four hours away, like Toulouse and Montpellier. And so they began organizing to stop this because they said, this is, this isn't like this should this we don't want this we don't even we really want to be engaging in e real ecological transition we really do want to have sustainable relationships but this this is not the way like this is we already know from what's happening and how many wind parks and solar farms have been developed that this isn't for local consumption this isn't necessarily benefiting people that well and while maybe there is more people were cut in and there is better benefit sharing i would say in the french case than in than in the case in Oaxaca, but it still wasn't that good at the same time. And so eventually what happened is that in 2015, they decided to build a protest site because this was on farmland in the area. And a lot of the people got together, a lot of the ecologically concerned people and the farmers got together. They built a shack where they could begin talking and organizing and kind of creating a social center there. And this was called La Masad. And Eventually it grew, they built other cob houses, they had greenhouses, they had their own small scale uh, wind turbine, they had water reclamation facilities to really begin living in a, in a, a green and, anti and really creating a different kind of anti-capitalist kind of new kind of relationships to kind of live communally, but also to resist the, this, this project from coming in. And eventually what happened and they did a lot of information raising. They made doc They have a documentary. They did a lot of work to actually show the reality of what what energy transition looks like and how this is actually just a way to take more land, to make more money, to build more infrastructural development. When in reality, there's still many. It's just an addition to existing markets 
of natural gas, a different kind of hydrocarbon extraction. And in France, they're still planning and building new C nuclear facilities that they're trying to justify as low carbon. So a lot of them was saying that calling, <laughs> calling bullshit on it and doing everything they can to resist it to actually fight for real ecological transition. Right. Yes. But, but is it not low carbon? And is that not something, could you not argue, say, well, listen, of course, you know, large corporations operating in areas with poor governance. I mean, at France, maybe yeah. uh, certainly in, in parts of the global south, you can see some of that going on. So, well, they're going to put in place some better governance and, you know, over, oversee this properly, make sure the workers get paid a little bit more and get a little bit of health care and so forth. But broadly speaking, this is the direction of travel we need to go in. We need to have, you know, low carbon energy. There's no way around that. And, you know, um, let's go that way. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, the problem is governance at this point in terms of their prior what they're prioritizing and how they're actually what they consider to be energy transition. Yes, but you also said, and, and this is quite interesting, and I'd like to get a sense of uh, the I call it the extractive footprint or some sense of the the footprint of maybe a wind turbine. You mentioned some of these rare earths. And you know uh, raw materials, copper or cobalt, and, and different metals and so forth. Is, is there some way of dimensionalizing what goes into maybe a solar or, or a particular wind energy system? I'm, so th- I mean, this is the problem. You can find endless life cycle assessment studies that are saying really good things based on a certain set of numbers and data and and using carbon carbon analyses and so on and so forth, but they, they in no way, there's, they, there's so many problems with how this is even done in terms of how businesses, I mean, one of the kind of the key studies is that only 14% of a company is actually, a company only looks at 14% of what they do to even measure what they're actually responsible for for their so-called carbon footprint. Because in reality, they're subcontracting down an entire supply web of different factories, manufacturers, raw materials that are outsourced, outsourced, outsourced in different ways that it's, I mean, I had a friend at German watch years ago, tell me saying like, I don't even think the companies know what mines these come from. They come from certain mines and areas. They're brought to smelters in Southeast Asia somewhere or in Brazil. And then there's a kind of a different trading process. And this is stuff is the kind of the research I've been getting into a lot on the side for the last couple of years. And it's, <laughs> and so, no, they're not carbon neutral. A lot of, I mean, even in itself, when I hear the word carbon at this point, this is almost kind of a shorthand to avoid the serious ecological and social problems being created by industrial development and natural resource extraction to kind of continue this trajectory of not reflecting on these larger issues that are systemic and continuing and have been for two centuries at this point. And so, I, I see carbon in a lot of these studies as a way to kind of sweep under the carpet the real human rights violations and problems, the real horrible factory conditions, the real serious problems of mining and what they create and what is done. And so, yeah, but to be able to quantify it is is very difficult. And I think it's very important that there needs to be more qualitative research done. I mean, so one of the things I was in a book that's hopefully coming out late, lately, by, or in at least the next month or two, about so it was edited by Susan Battelle and David Rudolph about kind of having a critical look at what's called social acceptance studies. And so social acceptance studies are actually understanding 
how you can get people to socially accept kind of large scale projects, but in this case it was geared towards wind energy and kind of so-called renewable energy. And what I would say is that you need to have a social acceptance that if you want to be building more industrial projects or more wind turbines, and really the only reason why I speak about wind turbines or solar panels, it's because people are engaging with them uncritically. I think that a lot of these infrastructures and a lot of that, the, a lot of the forms of mining, the, their needs, I'm not for, I'm trying to support other hydrocarbon extraction. It's my concern is to, is to be concerned about all the extraction, the large scale social and cumulative problems that are being created by all these different infrastructures, all these different types of mining. But what I would say is that on every level, at every phase of the supply chain, there needs to be a social acceptance study. And that is very unfeasible, unfeasible for what, how things have been going and, and the way that the kind of capitalist economy is designed, to, which is to perpetually grow and to keep extracting and to keep doing things and to create new market. And that's what the green economy is. It's a new market for a new kind of high energy intensive extractive operations for different new batteries, new smart technology. I mean, this, the whole idea of electric cars, th this is insane in terms of this being a real ecological solution. It's 3.2 tons of copper for one two megawatt turbine, which is from a business insider source. And some of these are kind of iffy, but really and ironically, the people who've been kind of the most transparent and most honest about the seriousness of the, the levels of natural resource extraction, of which they admit that they are missing data on so many different kind of they're not including different infrastructures. They're not including different uh, different kind of minerals. So ironically, the kind of the most important and up-to-date report is the 2020 Minerals for Climate Action, the Mineral Intensity of the Clean Energy Transition by the World Bank. And they were the other one in 2017 who did a big report. And, and the economist Jason Hickel at the London School of Economics, he tried to summarize it in saying that for some of the scenarios that they're putting up is that you need 34 million metric tons of copper, 40 million metric tons of lead, 50 million metric tons of zinc, 162 metric tons of aluminum, and you need 4.8 billion metric tons of iron. But so, the, and the, <laughs> the amount of mining, the amount of factory processes you have to do, the, the amount, I mean, there's the processing, the factory is, is insane. And it kind of big at the end of this is actually recycling is how much of this is really being recycled And the same report by the World Bank, according, and there's two ways you look at recycling. There's end of life, which is like how much you can get at the end of the life of something. But then there's recycled content, which is actually how much you can use and what you can use for another kind of infrastructure. But some of the, but so for example, for aluminum, the recycled content is only 34 to 36%. For cobalt, it's only 32%. For copper, it's only somewhere between 20 and 37%. For lithium, it's less than 1%. For nickel, it's somewhere between 29 and 41% based on this World Bank report. And they're the ones being kind of the most honest about the seriousness of what is going on. And again, they're using a model. They're, ba they're basing their numbers on different kind of scenarios for the development of so-called renewable energy or fossil fuel plus technologies. And the amount of extraction is severe. And I think in the beginning of this, I want to say there, you know, there's five ways you look at kind of when in any type of renewable energy development or fossil fuel plus development, you have the raw material extraction, which we've spoken about. Then you have the land contracting, which we spoke a little bit about with kind of Mexico. 
Then there's actually the social, ecological, and economic costs, which are severe, which I'll speak to a bit more. And so kind of going back to this case in Mexico, a lot of how one will gauge any type of wind or kind of our fossil fuel plus project is going to be based on kind of the, the geology and the hydrology in the area. This is going to determine actually how severe and also, you know, what, who, what, who are the people that live in these areas? You know, there's people that live a lot of times the world bank and the different kind of companies, they say, Oh, these are unused unoccupied areas because there's not some type of infrastructure on there already. But really in reality, these are the territories for different kind of indigenous groups or herders. And, you know, when you roll into these areas, you typically for, for, we'll say for a wind turbine, what you have to do is you have to, you have to clear existing vegetation. You have to cut trees. You have to, you know, if there are roads, you have to widen and fortify them for heavy machinery. If there aren't, you have to make them from scratch. And in the process, you're clearing roads, you're disrupt, you're compacting soil and disrupting the hydrology, the high, the kind of the water table. And then you have to go in there and you have to dig an enormous foundation. And it, again, this depends on the kind of the geology of the area, but it's going to be somewhere between eight meters and 12 meters deep and anywhere from 12 to 21 meters wide. And so you have to fill that entire thing with concrete and reinforced steel. And in the case in, in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec and Oaxaca, this is surrounded by farmland and that the water table is very low and there's fresh water that's abundant. Uh, or it was, and you could dig anywhere from a meter and a half to two meters and come across, come across water. And so in this case, what happened is that ultimately kind of the veins of the, of the earth are being, are being, <laughs> are being filled up with the waterways are being filled up with concrete. And this has generated a lot of problems in the area in terms of runoff into the lagoon has a lot of people are arguing is actually been stopped from the high intensity of wind turbines and the concrete foundations, which is now creating a rise in salinity and hurting the fish in the area. But so you have to put a lot of the concrete in, which is going to affect the soil and the hydrology. And a lot of this is an area where there's a lot of subsistence farmers. And so this is affecting their, the farming. This is affecting the fishing, even at, even at far distances, like I just said, it's affecting the fishing. And then, so you have to build a big tower, what was really interesting when I was there is actually to learn, and this is, I think, more common in older wind turbines, is actually how much they leak oil. And what, and so I have lots of accounts in my book of actually farmers talking about their, uh, there was a lot of struggle in the area to, to be able to actually still use their farmland. And there was a lot of people who resisted and refused to sell, but they would still get a wind turbine about 30 meters from where they are. And so oil would leak and would go into the ground. It would go into their water wells. There's a lot of talk. And this was widespread from not just people who are resisting it, but from random people out talk door to door or people in the market who would even say that, yeah, they believed in having these wind turbines. But the cows are getting sick and there's accounts of them dying and different things like this. So they were leaking oil, which I found interesting. And, and recently in France and some of the work I was doing, I heard more accounts of older wind turbines leaking oil. But so on top of that, there, as I think is more popularly known is that wind turbines really affect the bird population and they kill lots of birds. And there's ways to try to mitigate this, but there comes a point with the, and a lot of this depends on the quantity of wind turbines in an area, how they're placed and the mitigation measures that are put in place. And, but there comes a point that when you're building so much in different corridors that birds use to fly, to migrate at different times of the year, that they, they're just death traps 
So they have a much higher impact than people realize, you know, not only in their kind of the raw material extraction that goes on, the processing, manufacturing, shipping, construction and operation. And then kind of the fourth point is to really ask, what is the energy being used for? You know, what is this powering? Is this for local consumption? Is this to, uh, ways to really just make sure that towns are being sustainable? And in the case of Oaxaca, it's not the case. It, a lot of it's being exported to large industries, among them kind of Grupo Bimbo, which is the big fast food company down there. Walmart's a big player in this. They say that they have green electricity because they're getting a lot, they have deals with specific wind parks that are going straight to them. There's two different mining companies that have three wind parks between them in the area. So mining companies are trying to be sustainable by saying these things. Um, a lot of big industrial construction companies. Heineken was an investor on the park I mentioned that was resisted, successfully resisted. So a big thing is to ask, what is this energy really being used for? Is it being used to actually really for minimum use of kind of schools and hospitals? Or is this being used to crank out more plastic trinkets from China every year and just proliferating more plastic in this kind of unreflected consumerism? And then finally, and kind of the really heavy part, and uh and someone who has a great paper on this is Benjamin Sovacol and the colleagues that he works with, among them Andrea Brock, is, that is looking at the decommissioning of different kind of renewable energy infrastructure. And it's insane, actually, how much waste they generate. And they because their lifespan is anywhere from 25 to 35 years. You can extend them by retrofitting them for 40 years. But a lot of times they don't do this. And so they're generating a lot of waste and it's very questionable how much of this stuff is even being recycled. You know, big reports came out about a year ago about how they're just, they're burying the fiberglass blades and there's a, an extremely high quantity of landfills of fiberglass blades that they're going into. But they're generating lots of e-waste and there's already problems with smartphones, iPhones and all the, and this push for smart cities and smart technology that's supposedly green, they generate tons of e-waste. And they require so many different rare earth minerals that come out of disastrous areas in, in China in terms of what they're doing ecologically. And so, yeah, these are, these are kind of the five ways, five kind of, this is what we have to consider when we talk about kind of so-called renewable energy or, or more accurately fossil fuel plus development. Wow. Uh, th this is common dialogue, common rhetoric. Everyone talks about this. No, it, it's uh, shocking when you unpack it at the different levels and, as you say, the data isn't very good and people are trying to put together the information, but from what, you're, what you see on the ground at the different levels, different impacts is, is very shocking. Fossil fuel plus, what, why fossil fuel plus? What does that mean? And, and why is that a useful way of framing this? I mean, if we're being honest, fossil fuel plus is a bit of a generous way to kind of frame it. I mean, one of the, I wrote a short kind of blog piece commenting on the Green New Deal, because I, I think that Bernie Sanders, he did really well to actually be really critical and develop strong environmental policy in that case. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is him being very hard on the fossil fuel industry, which I appreciated. But then at the same time, on the other hand, parading electric vehicles, parading the shift into renewable energy, as they called it. And so really what I, what I advised in that, which I'm sure not many people really read, was really, Bernie, this, this would have been a conversation about you negotiating with kind of large fossil fuel and hydrocarbon industries to actually shift their industries strictly to be only being used for kind of for the development of solar and wind technology or 
or other types of kind of so-called renewable technologies. Because the fact is, is that really at the base of it all is that is that every wind turbine infrastructure or solar, it is in itself fossil fuels. Everything that you need, everything that they need to build them is based on fossil fuels. And so when I use the term fossil fuel plus, I was trying to be a bit positive about it, where it was like, okay, it's actually, they're all fossil fuels, but at the same time, there's the plus, there's the positive aspect of it, where you're actually harnessing wind and kind of solar energies. When you say fossil fuel plus, I mean, the, 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 the minerals in the ground, do you see them as fossil fuels? And I will, I mean, hydrocarbon extraction is, is a type of mineral, you know, it's the whole process of, of dying and extracting different kind of carbon from the ground. But the way I would include intensive mineral extraction in this is that you need the, you need the factories that build the machines, the factories that are built by hydrocarbons that have the machines running on hydrocarbons that then are extracting different kind of copper that are then going on conveyor belts run by hydrocarbons that are then going to factories and smelted run by hydrocarbons and so on and so forth. Yeah, but, but surely you need to compare that it, it with the alternative and say, well, of course, any economic activity you trace it, there's going to be some footprint. Uh, but presumably you need to compare it to the alternatives and say, well, listen, you know, if you're comparing that with oil, for example, it, it's 10 times better or 20 times better or something like that. No, of course. And, I, and the World Bank and their studies still try to be positive kind of based on that. But the, the thing is, if we're living in a in societies organized for perpetual growth, if if really, so for example, in the United States, the, the kind of corporate maximization kind of imperative or increasing shareholder value, if every year there has to be greater value based in industries, based on extraction or selling more products, I mean, the point that the conversation in itself about so-called kind of renewable technologies is is kind of pointless because there's always going to be a need to be constantly extracting, to be building these things. And from a utopian perspective, what's going on is they're trying to do spelting run on hydrological dams. They're trying to do mine they're trying to run mines that have giant dump trucks run on enormous batteries and things like this. So the the specific calculus in terms of what's worse or what not is one, it did, I mean, there's people trying to do it, and I'm, I've been extremely dissatisfied with a very honest and kind of in-depth take on this. But the point is, both are extremely taxing. And as I said in the beginning of this is, I mean, the, kind of the, the renewable energy or fossil fuel plus technologies for me at this point, I think they're important, but they're being used completely irresponsibly for actually bringing in real ecological transition. Yes. And this gets into uh, the heart of what you're talking about, which is the transparency. We talked about the governance and uh, presumably a lot of that's idiosyncratic, local, different conditions. Are, are, what, what about transparency? Are there, well, what's some of the best practice here? Presumably there are some organizations that are doing this in a, in a thoughtful way, take, trying to take into account many of the variables you're talking about. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's the whole push for a just transition and things like this. But for me, there's still so much of a blind spot up to the actual reality of how much hydrocarbon and extreme mineral extraction is involved in these things. But yeah, there, there are positives. I mean, for, there's, there's the community kind of, I mean, originally it was called the Danish model in terms of that there was, that they employed in Denmark where there was high level, there is more participation in project planning. 
there was a greater share and benefit allotted to the different communities. I mean, for example, the, like there's the Yansa in, in Oaxaca, there's the Yansa organization that tried to do community wind parks that were stifled through different kind of federal decisions. But what they did is that they gave the community 50% of the profits after they pay back kind of the infrastructure and building it. Um, so there's a lot of different ways and shades that they can be developed and that can be very positive. I would actually try to advocate a little more in terms of people becoming more responsible for how much power that they're using and to kind of have a more direct connection with energy use and to understanding the real kind of social and ecological costs associated with uh, energy infrastructure, which at this point has become, is completely normalized in terms of the different kind of pylons and high tension wires spread across the world. But again, a lot of this comes down to is what's being prioritized in our countries in terms of what's being valued. And at this point, it's really making profit off of things and making profit on things almost by any means in terms of what kind of products are being created. And really this kind of question of, you know, there's the kind of chicken in the egg of, oh, but people demand it, but there's so much supply of it. And really the reality is that a lot of, a lot of the, the demand is manufactured through media, through a lot of different kind of the engineering of consent kind of operations. I mean, I mean, if you look at any company, just their budgets for marketing to sell these products and to kind of create new trends is, is insane. And for right now there's, there's such an insane lack of transparency in terms of the supply webs and supply chains for not, for not just fossil fuel plus technologies and so-called renewables, but for a lot of different industries and also the biggest, and we have to remember that the biggest kind of, perpetrators of of ecological catastrophe are the militaries you know yes, u.s sure. military but the militaries of every country in terms of the different high-grade technologies the different kind of minerals that are used in these things and also just the the act of committing war and bombing people and destroying landscapes through and cruise ships and aircraft carriers and so on and so forth yeah so you've had experience on the ground in mexico and france in 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 a number of different countries how pervasive is this activity we're talking about? Uh, if you look at the IPCC, if you look at all of the initiatives uh, to decarbonize, you know, renewable energy is a, is a key plank. Is there a lot going on? Are there a lot of companies involved doing this? And are, are there a lot of landscapes involved? Yeah, I mean, there's tons. I mean, a lot of the big kind of, I mean, we can maybe maybe a bit kind of simply, we could say that in the 90s, there was kind of a push from, I mean, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there's a push from a lot of hydrocarbon industries to suppress renewable energy. But now around the 2000s, there's been a shift where now many of them are shareholders or have their own renewable energy branch. And so it's really the new booming industry. It's kind of institutionally supported locally, but on the international scale of the IPCC and the United Nations. And so there's many different actors involved. And it, it's a big market thing. And a lot of people kind of cynically say that, you know, they're trying to put wind turbines and solar panels everywhere. And a lot of this is just to kind of grab kind of public money in the European Union. And right now with the kind of the European, with the European Green Deal, I mean, the whole thing is really about advancing capitalist relationships and really opening up energy markets and decentralizing energy and, and really making new kind of economic frontiers through kind of renewable energy, so-called renewable energy or fossil fuel plus technologies. And yeah, it's, again, I want to stress that I am a supporter of the responsible and kind of localized use of of fossil fuel plus and and so-called renewable energy systems. 
but it's the way it's going and the way it's being kind of wedded onto kind of this existing culture of kind of extract everything to sell it to people is, is, and, and the environments that are being created because of it, it I really feel that kind of, uh, industrial humans are not only kind of hurting other cultures and people who live and appreciate their land and where they live and the nature and the animals that are there, but we're ultimately hurting ourselves because <laughs> the world's becoming increasingly polluted with, uh, I mean, between the nuclear waste leaks and, and kind of meltdowns and the leaks of pipelines all the time. And now with the kind of the spread of more energy infrastructure everywhere, it's, it's really building on each other. And I believe you spoke with Rob Nixon, who I think has done well to talk about slow violence and the different kind of ecological destruction and the resistance taking place against these things. Yeah. Where can listeners find out more about this? Are there some websites? Are there some investigative websites? Where should they look online? For me, I've done a lot of, I mean, a lot of the key journals in academia, you know, the journal of political ecology and environment and planning journals. ACME, the kind of the international and international geography journal. Uh, a lot of the uh, ultimately the key political ecology and agrarian, critical agrarian studies journals are going to have a lot of research kind of demonstrating the problems of and struggles with renewable energy. And, and I've been talking about it for years at this point, but now it's becoming a bit of a trend to actually recognize the kind of gaping black hole in environmental policy that is the supply chains related to renewable energy. And then there's also my books. I had a book that it came out last year, but it is marked for this year called The Violent Technologies of Extraction, which a lot of it's a bit of a review book, but there's the chapter five really gets into talking about these things. And there's also, I write in blog pieces, academic journals, so you can really just keep an eye on my work. And there's a lot already out and there's more coming, really trying to go deeper into some of these issues. Is there scope for multilateral organizations? Is there national international conventions or agreements or ways of looking governance overseeing these activities yeah i mean of course i mean for me there's there's so many possibilities in terms of how ecological relation like ecological sustainability could begin being implemented and i'm sure these institutions could be extremely big helps in doing these things in terms of even encouraging and legislating more transparency from companies, really taking seriously the scholars on degrowth and promoting kind of ideas of decolonial degrowth in terms of looking at different circular economies and ways that really people can start becoming, and when I say people like industrial societies can become a lot more responsible in terms of actually what they're mining, what they're using, what they're building and how they're recycling them. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a big, I support a lot of the kind of the, there's, there's plenty of ideas. I, I just get tripped up talking about them because there's so many ways that this can be done and uh, the governance institutions could very easily play a big and supportive role in these things. But at this point, I, I, don't, I don't see it happening because right now it's, it's really about creating these new green markets, tapping into new kind of public funds to create new industries that uh, I see is continuing the same trajectory of ecological degradation. And the difference this time between nuclear or different kind of hydrocarbon or thermal thermal kind of energy production is that right now people really think this stuff is green and it's going to save the world, but it's, they're not really looking critically and asking where, where the metal and the different resources for these kind of giant robots in the countryside, if we're thinking about wind turbines, where these resources came from and, and what the, what's really going on with them. What's next for you? Um, the next is what I'm doing right now. I'm a, 
so I've gone back to that site in France where I, I wrote an article in the Journal of Human Geography about the, the transformer and how, how the La Massade resisted it and how it got destroyed. But so now it's about a year since it happened and they've dug a 14 meter a hole and have done a huge landscape intervention to build the transformer. And now I'm looking more at the, the international and transnational connections related to the transformer. And so I'm going down the power line and I'm looking at the other conflicts against wind energy projects associated with it. Also other conflicts related to the, the high tension wires. And, and in Catalonia, there's been a struggle going on for 25 years against the MAT, the MAT, which stands for Muy Alta Tension Lina, which is the, the high tension power lines. And so they've been fighting this. And these power lines go south. They cross into other countries, which are related to other conflicts. And so I'm just looking into this now. I wish you the very best of, of, of success with the work you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing uh, all the work you've done. And very, very interesting to get your uh, perspective on, on the ground. And uh, I, I really thank you for your time today. Yeah, with pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. I'm always happy to have these conversations. If you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Roman Krisnarek's thought-provoking new book, the Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.